Welcome to USURF Spotlight, a new series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we discuss major topics and issues in the news and explore how those issues are impacting religious freedom around the globe. Here is USURF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, leading this week's discussion. Welcome to USURF Spotlight. Today we're going to talk about Fulani communities and religious tensions in West and Central Africa. Fulani are believed to be the largest nomadic ethnic group in the world. And in religious freedom circles, you often hear about the Fulani in the Nigeria context and how they're party to farmer herder conflicts and intercommunal violence, where religion plays a factor and tens of thousands have been killed. They're often branded by some as the primary instigators of the violence, but are they also victims? Today, we have USURF policy analyst and Africa specialist, Madeline Velturo, to go deeper on these issues. Welcome, Madeline. Thanks so much, glad to be here. So tell us, who are the Fulani? Where do they live in Africa? And, and why are they becoming increasingly front and center in the conversation on religious tensions and violence in West and Central Africa? Definitely. Yeah, the, the term Fulani refers to an ethnically delineated group of peoples, as you mentioned, one of the largest in the world uh, that reside in countries across the Sudano-Sahel belt in Africa that lies just south of the Sahara Desert. Uh, Fulani make up uh, prominent minorities in, in nearly a dozen countries across the continent from Senegal all the way over to Sudan. And there is a lot of diversity among Fulani communities, uh, but they do tend to share several common characteristics. They have a shared language, a shared history of cattle herding or livestock rearing as a form of livelihood, and perhaps most significantly for our conversation, the vast majority of Muslim of Fulani communities are Muslim. Um, you know, and so in recent years, there's been growing conflict uh, and violence committed both by and against Fulani communities in much of this region. Uh, and this violence, as you note, Dwight, uh, has escalated to claims dozens, sometimes hundreds of lives in a single incident. Uh, and in, in several of these contexts, although not all of these contexts, but uh, in, in some violence involving Fulani communities has aggravated religious tensions um, and interreligious violence. So the starkest example of this, as you say, is in the Middle Belt region of Nigeria, where violence between predominantly Muslim Fulani herders and Christian farmers have yielded claims from both religious communities that the other is attempting to eradicate them from the region. Uh, another example is the Central African Republic, where Fulani militias collaborated with other predominantly Muslim groups in 2013 to overthrow the Christian-dominant government in Bangui, uh, which triggered widespread religious violence and targeting of, of both Muslim and Christian civilians based on their religious identity. So this is where we see the issue of violence uh, committed by and against Fulani groups beginning to overlap with uh, international religious freedom violations. So in discussing issues that are related to this religious violence in, in Fulani communities, we often find uh, two different camps uh, diametrically opposed. Those who attribute the violence to climate change and scarcity of resources. And then there are those who attribute the violence to targeting on the basis solely on religious identity. Madeline, tell us, uh, are either of these camps right? Um, in my opinion, uh, neither of these narratives fully captures the complexity of what's going on. They're, they're both attempts to simplify 
an extremely complex confluence of factors. So it it is true that one of the main drivers, if not the main driver of, of much of this violence is tied to increasing resource competition between rural livelihoods in much of the Sahel. And climate change is one factor contributing to this increased resource competition, but it's not the only one. You know, we've got a combination of, of, of global climate change, regional climate variability, poor resource management and uh, and population growth and other forms of demographic change, uh, urbanization, that has led to shortages of, of land and water to feed the region's growing population. And, and this challenge is being compounded by, by weak or sometimes corrupt uh, governance that erodes or inequitably distributes the resources that are available. And, and this is where social divides come into the picture. Because uh, at the same time, in many of these contexts, we have entrenched ethno-religious divides across groups. So in many instances, the inability, or in some cases, the unwillingness uh, of governments to provide services and access to resources to all groups equitably has meant that these communities often take uh, protection and resource access into their own hands. And when this is happening as it is in a context where religion and ethnicity can sometimes be synonymous, um, these two dynamics together are triggering a retaliatory cycle of identity-based violence. And so this is why I think sometimes the climate change, religious violence debate, uh, it seems a little bit like the chicken and egg debate. I'm not sure how much value it has to have, to, uh, it adds to the conversation, because the truth is that uh, resource competition and ethno-religious violence uh, are caught in a reinforcing cycle in much of Western Central Africa, and it's leading to mass atrocities, including, but, but by no means limited to, uh, targeting of both Fulani and non-Fulani individuals based on their beliefs or their perceived religious identity. Now, in, in the report that you authored last month, that was published last month on Fulani communities, you noted that uh, there are some analysts that report a disproportionate representation of Fulani in violent Islamist groups in the region linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other affiliated groups. Doesn't this speak to religious motivations on the part of uh, the fighters or, or is something else at play here? What can, what can you tell us on, in that aspect? You've definitely hit on a very uh, unclear part of, of the narrative. You know, there is no doubt that there is growing militant Islamist activity across much of West Africa. And while many of these groups have some ties to global jihadist organizations, as you mentioned, like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, they are equally driven by hyper-local grievances and power dynamics. And so strangely, religious ideology is only one factor of many driving individuals, Fulani or otherwise, uh, to join jihad groups in West Africa. Uh, others joined to hone their fighting skills, uh, to protect their families, uh, their livelihoods from law in lawless regions. Um, in some contexts, we've actually seen ex extremist groups have to relax their religious ideologies in order to recruit fighters. So this all paints a very complex picture of the motivations that expand well beyond religious ideology for rank and file fighters. And then in addition, we also have countries, uh, some of the countries with the strongest religious tensions like Nigeria or Central African Republic, Fulani are not particularly associated with global jihadist movements. So of course in Nigeria, we have the real threat of Boko Haram, but Boko Haram is a predominantly Kanuri led uh, movement. And the links between Boko Haram and Fulani groups uh, in Nigeria are fairly limited as of now, despite large levels of violence involving Fulani communities for the past several years. So the picture regarding violent extremist organizations in West Africa is extremely 
murky. Uh, and we have to be careful not to misinterpret local dynamics or falsely attribute ideological motivations without strong evidence. I was going to just follow up on that. You mentioned Boko Haram, and in the context of uh, Fulani or House of Fulani, if you could, if you could say a little bit about because I think those terms get uh, interchanged quite a bit. But is there a sense of you know those who are members of Boko Haram? You know how many House of Fulani or Fulani uh, make up membership, or is that not clear? It's very unclear. Uh, right now, I would say the evidence suggests to not many, um, but but that potentially that has the potential to grow the Fulani uh, representation within Boko Haram factions. There are actually several distinct Boko Haram factions operating, um, and and uh, Fulani are not. Uh, they do not reside uh, in large numbers in the northeast of Nigeria, which is where the Boko Haram are are predominant, but Boko Haram is migrating into the Northwest where you have more Fulani groups. Uh, and so we have seen some attempts by Boko Haram groups to, to target uh, Fulani communities for recruitment. So the picture is changing right now, not a, not a, a large percentage, uh, but that could change. Okay. What would you say then are the most common misconceptions that you find in the narrative surrounding the drivers of violence by and against Fulani communities, not only in Nigeria, but tell us a little bit more about, you know, other countries in West and Central Africa in this uh, in this area. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, one of the most prominent misconceptions I see in the conversation is, is the assumption that Fulani communities are homogeneous. Uh, you know, there is tremendous diversity across Fulani groups. We've got uh, geographic diversity, like you mentioned, diversity of livelihood. We have both farming and herding Fulani and agro-pastoralists. Uh, we have divides, strong divides between rural and urban Fulani, uh, divides across age groups. And so actually there's even debate about if you can even call the Fulani an identifiable ethnic group. And so this diversity makes generalizations about Fulani uh, really difficult. Um, and then another common misconception I often see is a generalization, which is that Fulani are perpetrators of violence, when in fact, Fulani are both perpetrators and victims of violence and of ethno-religious targeting. And, you know, we see this frequently in atrocity risk scenarios where the line between victim and perpetrator is blurred. And that's definitely happening here. Um, and it's also a narrative that doesn't really leave room for Fulani peacemakers, when in fact we've seen uh, many examples of Fulani leaders and community members working to de-escalate violence and interreligious tensions. Um, and then I'll just finally mention, I don't think people recognize how poor our information and data on these conflicts are. It's overwhelmingly anecdotal, unsystematically uh, gathered, and that makes some of this decision-making and analysis really difficult. Yeah, no, it's obviously, it's very complex as you're, as you're unpacking this, but what would you say uh, to address this uh, religious-based uh, violence and the targeting buy-in against Fulani communities? And and the other side of that would be what what can the U.S. government do in the international community? Is there anything uh, that the U.S. and or the, their partners, the international community, can do to help mitigate some of the violence? And and what is going on to the to the best of your knowledge? Yeah. Well. Well. First, uh, like I mentioned, I think we need to invest in better and more systematic information and data gathering, especially on individual group leaders. Uh, and also on kind of like financial and arms flows, where the money and the weapons coming from and the motivations of the fighters. Uh, and this will help us to do the second thing I need, I think we need to do, which is we need to de-link the conversation from ethnicity and focus it on uh, individuals and identifiable groups. Uh, you know, the, the more detail we know about the perpetrators, the more likely we are to achieve justice for the victims and, and to prevent mobilization of future perpetrators. 
Uh, and then finally, I think we need to, to use this, to, you know, we need to unify around a, a cohesive set of policy asks aimed at reducing violence and, and, and impunity for violence in West and Central Africa writ large. So right now, policy analysts and advisors, uh, we're kind of fighting amongst ourselves, uh, almost competing with each other about which uh, facet of the problem is the most significant or important. But the truth is that these dynamics are so intertwined that there is no solving one without solving the other. There is no addressing religious targeting in this region without addressing resource scarcity and vice versa. And so the policy analysis community uh, in DC really needs to speak with a strong and unified voice to the US government. We need to advocate for a, a, a holistic and a comprehensive approach uh, that, that involves kind of peace building, building of good governance, good resource management, uh, and the strengthening of minority voices and their democratic participation in countries around the region. Now, I just one final follow-up question here. Obviously, USURF uh, has recommended that a country like Nigeria, where there's a you know, significant Fulani population and have been uh, some of the uh, uh, drivers of, of the violence, obviously, uh, to some extent, um, we've recommended that Nigeria should be a country of particular concern for egregious violations, really for the government uh, you know, uh, allowing it to, under their watch, not necessarily being the perpetrators, but... Uh, but tolerating this kind of uh, violence and targeting. Uh, and yet, do you think that uh, if they were named as CPC, uh, there would be some options there uh, and put some pressure on the government to indeed actually uh, put some further resources and maybe the U.S. Uh, through some programming or, or assistance uh, could help move them in the right direction? You know, it's really difficult to say uh, in part because the Nigerian government, there's a lot of reasons why the Nigerian government, you know, that we recommend that they be a CPC, including uh, it, improper implementation of Sharia law in the north in, in context where the, the Fulani uh, community violence uh, and its inter-religious uh, dimensions are only one facet of, of the broader challenge of religious freedom in Nigeria. Um, I will say, I do think the Nigerian government is doing much more to address the jihadist threat in the Northeast than they are doing to address the, uh, the interreligious tensions in the middle of the country. Whether or not that has to do with just sheer exhaustion of resources or, or something more sinister on, on the base of the government, uh, I, I don't feel comfortable too comfortable saying, um, but I do think that if the U.S. were to provide additional assistance for to... to um, help Nigeria reform and, and strengthen its police to be able to address what is effectively criminal violence uh, by, by Fulani and against Fulani communities in the middle, in the middle belt, um, that, that that would then show whether or not the issue is an issue of resources or an issue of will from the Nigerian government. Um, and, and, and it would be an important step forward uh, in, in ultimately eradicating the problem. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, we'll have to leave it right there. I want to thank uh, USERF policy analyst Malin Velturo for her insights today. And you can find her report on Fulani communities on our website at www.userf.gov. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight.